The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Man, it's so good to have you. We've got Kayla Steckline back on the podcast, and today's episode is brought to you by Overflow and by He Gets Us. So you can empower your donors to easily give stock donations. All you have to do is go to overflow.co, that's overflow.co, C-O, not com, slash carry, overflow.co slash carry, and learn more about year-end pricing and download their free stock giving guide. And He Gets Us is the incredible campaign that you can join today. And if you do, you will get access to sermon assets, discussion guides, Bible reading plans, and more. All you have to do is go to hegetsuspartners.com slash churches. I wanted to have Kayla Steckline back. She's got a new book and just check in with how she's doing. She's been through so much. And in a season where so many leaders have struggled with loss, uh, Kayla is a really helpful voice in all of that. And we get into areas where I wanted to pick up, if you listened to the first time she was on, we talked about um, the pressures of ministry and we picked up that thread. It actually gets pretty vulnerable in this episode. And it made me think so much, I wrote a post to sort of explain a little bit more about what Kayla and I talk about. You can find that over at my blog at kerryneuhoff.com. And it is called Five Ways Pastors Make Ministry Harder Than It Needs to Be. I sort of took some time to reflect on what we talked about. We talked about, you know, I kind of escaped from the pressure of ministry. Uh, I don't know that I would say it quite the same way again, uh, but I definitely can look back on it with some perspective now. And if that's helpful, just go to my website, kerryneuhoff.com, click on blog, You'll see it there pinned at the top, Five Ways Pastors Make Ministry Harder Than It Needs to Be. And of course, if you're listening to this months or years later, you always Google that. It will be there for a long time as well. So I hope that helps. We're going to talk about the unsustainable pressures of ministry on church leaders, how to grieve your losses, and overcoming victim mentality. Super helpful conversation. Kayla is a best-selling author, speaker, and mental health advocate. She's spreading awareness and offering hope after losing her husband, Pastor Andrew Steckline, to suicide. Her latest book, Rebuilding Beautiful, is a roadmap for anyone who's on the path from heartache to a new life. So we are really grateful for our partners. You know we choose them carefully, so I hope you check them out. Uh, Overflow is doing some incredible stuff. So if you've ever thought, why don't we ever get stock donations? It's probably because it's way too hard. People actually do give stock, and it's a huge misconception in the giving space today that donors don't want to give it. They do because it's a very tax-efficient way to give to your church. They just don't want to jump through all the hoops to do so. Overflow is an online software that empowers donors to easily give stock donations to churches and nonprofits within minutes not months. I have done transacted stock donations. When I was lead pastor, I'll tell you, it took forever. What about minutes, not months? Did you know that 90% of U.S. wealth is non-cash assets like stocks? Churches that only accept cash donations? Well, you'll get on average $128. But do you know the average stock donation through Overflow is over $10,000? So if you want to unlock more giving channels this season and in the future, visit overflow.co slash carry. That's overflow.co, not .com, slash carry to learn more about year-end pricing and download their free stock giving guide. And then 
I want to thank the people over at He Gets Us. They are making a huge difference across America. People are coming to faith. And uh, thanks to the campaign, millions are starting to explore Jesus' message of radical love. Well, if you're a church leader and you want to bring the unprecedented discussion into your church, you can do that. You will get sermon assets, discussion guides, Bible reading plans, and more resources all centered around the relatable teachings of Jesus. All you have to do is go to hegetsuspartners.com slash churches and you will learn more and get access. So with all that said, let's dive into my conversation with Kayla Steckline. Kayla, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me again. Grateful to be here. Yeah. Well, we had a great conversation last time, and we'll definitely link to it in the show notes if people want to go back. And we talked about Andrew's death, uh, the impact of suicide on you and your boys and the church family. And I want to pick up on something, though, that we touched on last time that I just think we could go deeper on. Um, So... Your late husband, Andrew, served as lead pastor of a growing, large, multi-site church. And we talked about some of the pressures that both you and Andrew felt, you know, as the, quote, clergy couple in that role. Pressures around growth, staff leadership, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in what ways, and this is where I want to start, in what ways would you say that systemically there was kind of an unsustainable pressure? Because mm-hmm. we were talking about this before we hit record, like, maybe there'll be a new poll by the time this comes out, but the last Barna poll suggested 42 pastors, 42% of pastors are seriously thinking about leaving full-time ministry. And, you know, that's like, whoa. But you found some of those pressures mm-hmm. too. Can you talk about that? Oh, it feels like a lifetime ago now. You know, it's been it over... Because it was four years over ago, Over four right? years, yeah, four since yeah. I was pastor's wife. Um But, you know, looking back, I think there was too much for us. You know, there was too much pressure on one person. And so I think that that's where the exhaustion happens. That's where the burnout happens when all of the pressure, all of the weight um, is on one person and they feel Andrew felt that. He would often refer to himself as the linchpin in his unhealth. He referred to himself as um, the linchpin. He thought he was the person holding the whole thing together, keeping the church afloat, keeping the church going. I think he felt that through um, when his dad was dying and he was stepping up and taking on more responsibility. And he really truly was, you know, carrying a lot and doing a lot and showing up last minute. He'd get a call on Saturday night. Hey, you're going to speak on Sunday. And, you know, there was a lot of those moments. And so I think he did feel like he had served, um, he had served well and that he was holding it all together. And um, for anybody in that position, that's an incredible amount of pressure. And I wish he would have been able to have a team at the top um, that could have helped alleviate some of that pressure, share some of that pressure. I wish he would have been able to create a teaching team of people that are on staff. And Andrew had such a a high bar of excellence um, that I think he had fear of sharing the stage with other people that maybe weren't at the caliber that he thought that they should be at. And so... You know, I wish he would have let that go a little bit and been able to share the stage with me, maybe people that weren't as gifted or weren't as talented, but could have the opportunity to grow in their gifts and abilities with teaching. Um, 
I wish he would have not had as much pressure on himself to perform a perfect message. You know, I think he had a lot of pride in not using his notes and that alone um, put so much pressure on pastors to go up there with like a memorized message and not use your notes at all. And he did that almost every Sunday and he would spend the entire day Saturday at the office running through his talk over and over and over and over and over again until what he said, until it went from his head to his heart. But I think it was until it was memorized. He was there, you know, talking it out Mm -hmm. over and over and over and Mm -hmm. over again until he could do without his notes. And so, you know, I think in the world that we live in and the Instagram world that we live in, the TikTok world that we live in, um, I think there's some pressure to look a certain way, to uh, have some kind of Instagrammable, you know, one-liner or, <laughs> you know, like punchline, or yeah. which is wild because pastors aren't stand-up comedians. Um, but I, but sometimes I think it can feel that way. And Andrew would often study stand-up comedians on how to, you know, how to give the message and and do those kind of things. So. So much, you know, so many things that I think put extra pressure that's not necessary. So Andrew and I are definitely different people, but I can relate to a lot of what you just described. So if you're willing to go a little bit deeper on that, um, let me ask the question this, because we talked about Andrew's unique personality and we're definitely not here to throw him under the bus or critique him, you know, posthumously. Uh, And yet... I look back on my leadership and I'm like, you know what I should have done? So let's let's break this down. Let's talk about systemic pressures and then let's talk about if you if you could do it over mm-hmm. again. Like how much of that do you think was Andrew's unique personality? Do you know his Enneagram type? Was he an eight or a one? I have or no idea. You never did And it. I think we never yeah. did it. It was just becoming popular, I feel like, after he passed away. Yeah. Um, or right before he passed away. And if I could pin him, I would I thought he was a one for a while, but I actually think he was a three. A three, like a performer. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned a lot of those things. Like I remember in the last interview, the way he had to dress mm-hmm. or the clothes or, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of performance addiction. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could say, I'm not a three, but I am a recovering performance addict. Yeah. So I understand that. It's one of the things I love about this interview. It's 99.9% of the time unedited. Yeah. Unless the guest wants an edit, I leave the ums and the ahs and the weirdness and all that in there. And it's good discipline for me, yeah. you know, to do that. But like looking back on that, if you could, if you could redo some of those things or provide different counsel to Andrew or make different choices, what would some of the choices that were within your control be? And then we're going to talk about external pressures. Mm-hmm. So looking back on it, what are some things that you're like, yeah, hindsight being 2020, probably should have, would have, would have been good too, but we didn't. I wonder how many pastors' wives would agree that um, I felt like I didn't have much of a say. I felt like it was... Um, you know, Andrew was going to do what Andrew was going to do. And I could voice my opinion, but my opinion wasn't always... Um, taken into account. And so I kind of had to back off a bit. And I describe it even in my new book, Rebuilding Beautiful, that I often felt small in the shadow of my husband. I often felt insignificant in the shadow of my husband. His vision and his dreams and his calling felt massive. and, And I was there to support him. Um, you know, looking back is a lot of what it was. And so 
Hindsight, I wish I would have been able to find my voice. I wish I would have been able to um, have the confidence to speak my mind and not have any fear of how that would be perceived or taken. Um, I wish I would have, you know, I think there was a lot of things that bothered me um, that I just was quiet about because I just, it was like walking on eggshells sometimes and Mm. I think there were a lot of things that bothered me that I just was quiet about because I didn't want to upset him. I didn't want to mess him up for Sunday. And I think, you know, for a lot of pastors too, it's like, you know, for Andrew, it felt like um, if anything during, if there was any extra pressure, if there was any extra drama, if there was any extra thing that happened in the week, it was going to mess up his message for Sunday. And so it was like trying to keep the peace, trying to keep the routine for Saturday, trying to like keep the house clean and the kids well behaved and like, you know, manage all those things so that the message could be the best that it could be for Sunday. And so, you know, that put a lot of pressure on me um, just to serve and serve and serve Andrew um, so that he could perform at his best and you know, I would get there before service started. I would get there extra early on Sunday so that I could have the kids checked in and I'm sitting in the front row. And after the first service, I would go and get him lunch and I would hand deliver it to his office and I would have dinner waiting for him when he got home on Sunday evening. Wow. And, you know, I really in that in those years of ministry just took my role as serving my husband and serving my kids in that season of life like very seriously. And in that, I lost my sense of self and um, my whole world revolved around Andrew and his needs and the needs of my kids. And um, I often didn't ask myself, what does Kayla need? What is Kayla's opinion on this? You know, Um, this is making me feel uncomfortable. Why don't I say something about it? And um, yeah, so I just want to encourage anybody that's listening, that's a pastor's wife, like you have a voice. And your thoughts matter and your opinion matters and your insight matters and um, don't be afraid to use it. I really appreciate you talking so openly about that. And you're reminding me it's been a few years since I was a lead pastor and a couple of years since I was in the regular teaching rotation. But you're right. There's this like pressure with Sunday that even if it's 30 or 35 Sundays a year, there's an un, almost an unbearability to it. Some of that is self-induced. Some of that is self-imposed. Um, you know, but there is that feeling. And it, it's interesting because hearing you describe that reminds me what I don't miss about being yeah. a lead pastor, or at least the kind of lead pastor I was. Because, you know, I may have a big blog post or a big conference or a big interview for this podcast. I don't know why. I just don't feel the pressure that I used to. I don't feel like, and I bet you my wife, Tony, who you haven't met, but if you did, you guys could swap stories about, you know, oh yeah, when Carrie had that big series launching or whatever. And I wonder what we need to do to, you know, one thing that helped is, uh, I don't think the message, I think the message is really important. Don't get me wrong. I believe in the Bible. I believe in God's word. I believe in preaching it. I think it has the power to change lives. But I think, you know, again, as we were talking about before we hit record, there's a lot of noise out there. Like the sermon seemed to be more heard even five years ago 
than it is heard today. It's just getting drowned out in a gazillion channels and sound bites and so on. And part of that, there's a pressure that comes with obscurity too. But you know, if you were, and you're not, but if you were doing it over again, yeah. what what are the kinds of pressures, like how would you do it differently? Mm-hmm. What, what would you say? You would exercise your voice a little bit more. Yeah. Um, what else might you do differently to pull that sense of walking on eggshells, constant pressure down several degrees on the thermometer. As you were talking, I just felt this in my spirit of um, you're free, Carrie. Like you were set, you set Mm. yourself free. And I think if I, you know, you're free from that pressure. And I think if I went back and did it all over again, I would want to be free. I would want to feel free. I wouldn't want to feel um, like I have to fit some kind of mold. And I think so often we give our we we make the mold for ourselves, and we're forcing ourselves to fit yes. it. Of like, this is who I want to be. This is the kind of church I want to have. This is the kind of person I want to attract. And I'm going to force myself to fit that mold, um, no matter what it takes. And I think um, having some healthy boundaries in place, not putting so much pressure on Sundays, you know, like putting mm. putting more pressure on um, being relational <laughs> and like actually mm. like hanging out and rubbing shoulders and spending time with the staff and hanging out and rubbing shoulders and spending time with people on Sunday. Um, Andrew was untouchable and it it made me feel untouchable too. You know, he often spent time in the green room on Sundays or he would stay in the front row after service and just talk with a few people that came up to him. He had a security guard that would follow him around. There was a security guard that would come meet me at my car and walk me and my kids in. And those are the, some of the, some of the things that made me feel uncomfortable and I didn't like it, (laughs) but I was, I was afraid to share my opinion on it. Um, but you know, I think taking yourself off of the pedestal, I wish I would have been able to take myself and help Andrew take himself off of the pedestal that a lot of people had placed him on. And maybe he had placed him himself on as well in his own young ego that was still had so much to prove. And I think if he would have stayed in ministry, I hope that he would have been able to grow out of some of that and just mature out of some of that, um, that, that ego, you know, that I think a lot of young 30 year old men have of just like, they need to prove themselves. They need to make money for their family. They want to have the house and the car and they want this image, you know, that they have painted in their mind of what they want to achieve. And they're often working out of their ego. So I wish, you know, looking back, if I could do it again, um, I wish we could have stepped out of some of those things and set ourselves free um, from that, free from the performance, free from the pressure, free from thinking we were such a big deal. You know, it's like, we, I think we thought we were such a big deal. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like really like the reality of it is like the local pastor is really not that big of a deal. And I even see that, you know, with some of the local pastors in our community, like some of the comments that they've made, I'm like, wow, like <laughs> the ego, the ego is powerful and the ego can just take mm. over if we don't keep it in check. And you're not that big of a deal. And, um, you know, yes, Sundays matter, but it's okay if you like use your notes. It's okay if it's not this like, <laughs> you know, amazing, incredible performance that you're giving on Sunday. Like 
it's okay if you want to look, look down and stay at your podium and read word for word what you've written on your notes. And, um, you know, I wish we would have made family more of a priority. I think so often, you know, pastors say that it's like God, family, and then the church, but it's often church, God, family. Family. And family yeah. kind of gets the leftovers. And so, you know, looking back, I wish that we would have made the Sabbath days more of a priority, that Saturday wouldn't have been filled with message prep and would have been filled with beach days and soccer games and, you know, the things that it should be filled with, you know, in this season of life. For me, it's like skate parks and, you know, hanging out yeah. with the kids. Um, but it's just like, don't take yourself so seriously. I think we get in this like rhythm and routine of taking ourselves so seriously um, that it does put us in chains. And um, it's like everything is so serious. There's no room for fun. There's no room for freedom. It's like we're so laser focused. Um, and when we do that, we miss out on like what God's doing all around us. We miss out on the side conversations with people on Sundays. We miss out on the conversations that we could have had with people in the lobby. Um, we miss out on so many, on so many things when we're like too laser focused on ultimately things like, you know, 20 years down the road. Is that is that really gonna matter as much as it did that in that one weekend? If you think about the pressure of the church, I mean, even professional athletes get an off season, right? Like basketball doesn't run 52 weeks a year, nor does baseball, hockey, football any of that. Some of those are really short seasons. Actors take breaks between projects. And yet we have this 52 or 50 Sunday rhythm. You know, there were two change points for me. One happened around 40 when I hit burnout. Andrew didn't, you know, live to 40. But the other was when I, I stepped out of church leadership and now it's just a company. And I feel more freedom to screw up a company than I felt screw up a church, if that makes sense. Like if this goes down, it's like, all right, well, my wife and I get impacted and some people get impacted and I have no intention to take it down. But I wonder looking back, and I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder if God's more generous with us than we are when we're pastors, you know? Yes, it's the church and that's good that you take it seriously and you need to take it seriously. But oh my gosh, does every Sunday have to be the best Sunday ever? Like, you know, that kind of, and I think a lot, I wonder how much of that is, as you're suggesting, self-imposed as opposed to divinely ordained. Yeah. We literally had a saying that we would say around the the office, and it was when um, the hashtag thing was popular, and it was hashtag make it better. So it was like always like walk in a room, how can you make it better? And that is like so much pressure. If you're always like looking to make things better, then it's like, is it ever going to be good enough? You know, are you ever going to be mm. able to say, you know what? I think, I think it's good enough. Or are you always going to feel this pressure to outperform every Sunday, to outperform yourself in the last message series, to outperform attendance on Sunday? And I think we have to let go of the hashtag make it better and be okay with good enough. Hmm. Yeah, that's a because eventually even make it better. I've thought about that. It gives you diminishing returns, right? Like we've done, you you write a lot in your book about your house and kind of making it your own and this new phase. But you know this with renos, and I, I follow you on Insta. So you had a lot of work to do over yeah. the last couple of years, right? And it looks beautiful. 
But if you can just keep going. I mean, if you get glued to the Magnolia Network or HGTV, you're like, well, what we did three months ago isn't good enough. We got to rip out that mantelpiece and do it again or paint it a different color. And you're what? Yeah. When when do you sit back and enjoy? When do, when do you sit back and delight? You know, the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, if I got that right, I'll be corrected. I promise you it. Somebody will. Uh, says, you know, the chief end of humanity, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mm. And I'm okay at the glorify, not so good at the enjoy. You, you've you've got a very different frame of reference now than you had, say, five years ago for all of this. What has been part of that reprogramming? What What is the journey that allows you to see that phase of your life now mm-hmm. through a different lens? What's happened, Kayla? I think like you, I was set free. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's really heartbreaking that it took Andrew's death to set me free. I wish I would have been able to be set free in that season of life. Um, but I think I'm free from the pressure. I'm um, given myself freedom to step in and out of a hundred different versions of self of, you know what, this is the person that I am today. And this is the work I have in front of me today. And these are the ages of the kids I'm raising today. And this time next year, this time tomorrow, this time next week, it could look completely different and that's okay. Um, You know, I think for so long I held so tightly to so many things and it's like living with like clenched hands and holding so tightly to so much and thinking things were, forever thinking I was going to be a pastor's wife forever. We called our home a forever home. And it's like, now I, Mm. I live with unclenched hands and my home is a gift that I have today. And yes, I've poured out so much, so many hours of labor to make it into the beautiful home that it is today. But I don't know that it's forever. You know, I could, I could pick up, pack up and move next week. Like not holding tightly to anything. And I think my loss has given me eyes to see that everything is a gift. Everything is a beautiful, undeserved gift. And just living in gratitude, living with unclenched hands, living in surrender. It's like a daily lesson in surrender and that this isn't the life that I thought I was going to live. And my life is really hard in a lot of ways. And being a single mom to three very active boys is a lot. And uh, renovating a home on my own is a lot. Trying to figure out how to provide for my family in Southern California (laughs) is a lot. You know, it's a lot to navigate. And so it's a constant just like release and exhale of knowing that I can't do it on my own. Um, There is such a greater dependence on God in this season of life than I think there was in that season of life. And, you know, I was very dependent on God in that season of life, but I feel like now it's an even greater release and surrender. And I trust you, God, and you're going to, you've provided for us every step of the way you've provided for us the last four years. I have no idea what I'm going to do, you know, in the next year, two years, three years, I have no idea where I'm going to go or who I'm going to become, but I trust that you're going to lead me. I trust that you're going to provide for me. I trust that you're making a way for me. And I just get to do this with you. I get to take your hand. I get to take your leading and I get to show up and I get to try my best and that's enough, you know, being willing to show up and try my best. And I feel like that's what this season of life is for me. It's just like showing up willing to try 
and knowing that sometimes it might work out and sometimes it might not work out. And even the the two books that I wrote, this last book was really hard to write. I signed the book contract and then Mm. I went straight into summer break with my kids. And I'm like, can I actually, do I actually have time to do this? Can I, what, what did I sign myself up for? Can I do this? Mm -hmm. And it was just sitting down at my computer, showing up, willing to try. (laughs) And eventually it turned into a book and I wasn't sure there for a minute if it was actually going to turn into a book or not. Um, But, you know, I think it just, that that's what it is in this in this season of life for me, it's a showing up, willing to try. It's a living with unclenched hands. It's a daily lesson in surrender. And uh, it's a deep trust in God that he's going to keep leading us and providing for us and taking care of us because it's too much for me to bear on my own. Hmm. So there's a lot of leaders listening right now who haven't been set free. They're still in that matrix of Sunday to Sunday. And I'm, you know, very committed to the local church. Like I want to help reverse the decline in the church and help church leaders. I'm very committed to that into our local church. So, you know, what advice would you have for those who are still doing what Andrew did and what you used to do, what I used to do? And what advice would you have for board members, business leaders who are invested in the church, because we have thousands of them listening too? who may be in a place to make some changes in the church. Like, what what would you suggest to release themselves from the pressure other than quit your job (laughs) and move to another city, all right? Because that may not be the calling for the vast majority of people, right? Like, we need excellent leaders in the church. So how do we make this more sustainable? What would you do? Uh, First thing that came to mind, I think I mentioned it earlier, is just to share the stage. You know, share Mm. the pressure. Um, share the stage, be willing to not put so much pressure on yourself and be willing to, um, let go of the ego, um, that so, you know, wants to be in control, that wants to be in charge, that thinks everything depends on them. Um, people are going to show up on Sunday, whether you're preaching or not. And, you know, they, I think there's this idea that more people are going to show up if the lead pastor is preaching and less people are going to show up if it's a guest speaker or someone else Fair. preaching on Sunday. And um, just letting go of that mentality and being able to release that and know that whoever needs to hear the message on Sunday, whoever needs the community of the local church is going to be there. You know, and like, and, and, yeah. th- and that's yeah. enough. Um, and so sharing the stage, sharing the pressure, if there's a way that you can, um, share that pressure at the top to know that you are not the linchpin, you are not the person holding it all together, um, creating a team of people that can help carry the weight and the responsibility. And I know that's hard. I know Andrew was looking for a long time, um, for people to, that he could trust to be with him at the top, that he could trust their voice. He could trust that they weren't going to say something super goofy or, totally off script or just out of line on this <laughs> from the stage on Sunday. Like I know it's easier said than done. Um, but if there's a way to share some of that pressure, to have some accountability for the pastor, to have people on the board that can speak into the leader, the lead pastor that can speak into their lives um, in a way that holds them accountable. You know, we had, we were a non-denominational church. And so Andrew was in charge of the board. So really at the end of the day mm. there wasn't there wasn't anybody that was keeping him accountable they could to an extent but Andrew at the end of the day still had the final say 
And so I think having some people in place that can help keep that person accountable, can help keep them in check, um, can, you know, say things that are helpful and help have some parameters and um, can offer some feedback and some constructive criticism that's like actually taken to heart. Yeah, if I can just underscore a couple of things you said uh, for the leaders who are listening. After I burned out, one of the first changes I was in the process of making was, you know, we had a midweek service too. So I was probably speaking, preaching 70 times a year, which is insane. Looking back on it, they can't all be gems, but I cut it back to about 30, 35 times a year. Started sharing the stage. And then started really leaning into other leaders. And that created a much healthier next nine years as a senior pastor, trending toward health, which, you know, has continued. And if you took all, like you're not designed to do it yourself. It's an Exodus 18 type thing. And I think leaning into the team is so important. So you've done a lot of work, if I'm not mistaken, with other widows, some of whom are probably ministry wives as well, I would imagine. What are the stories you're hearing from other widows about whether it's grief or their former life or ministry or any mm-hmm. of that. I'd love to to find out because you've, you've spent quite a bit of time in those Yeah, circles. there's an incredible ministry out of Atlanta called Never Alone Widows. And my friend Rachel mm-hmm. leads the ministry and it is a beautiful, amazing, Holy Spirit-driven ministry. They're doing incredible work to love the widow and They have local retreats um, all over the U.S. They actually just launched in the last year local widows ministries, and I think they have over 50 of those now across the country. Hmm. They host retreats for widows of heroes, um, which are like firefighter, army, military, uh, police officer um, widows. And then they have regular widow retreats uh, for widows that are young moms. And um, they are doing incredible work. There's a conference actually happening in February where any widow, any stage, any age can come to. And I have had the incredible opportunity to serve um, with the ministry in the last four years. And it has been such a beautiful part of my healing journey. And you know, there's so much power in solidarity and being able to rub shoulders with other people that are walking through the exact same thing that you're walking through and other people that are navigating single mom life, that are navigating losing a husband, that are navigating. I think the biggest thing that widows navigate um, in my experience and in my experience with other and conversations with other widows is identity is asking ourselves the question of like, who am I now, you know, on the other side of loss? Who am I now in this new life? Who am I now if I'm not that person's wife? And I think so often sometimes uh, widows can jump right into the next relationship because we don't know, we're afraid to answer that question of who am I? We're afraid to show up and do the hard work of healing our identity or sitting alone with ourselves. We're afraid of the loneliness. The loneliness is loud. Um, the loneliness is day in and day out. And it's just like this companion, this constant companion for me that I'm still getting used to. You know, I'm not I'm not used to being alone as much as I am and have been in the last four and a half years. But I'm so grateful for the time that I've had. I'm so grateful that I didn't rush into relationship. I'm so grateful that I've had time to do the work. I've had time to show up for the hard work of healing, to go sit in therapy, to ask myself those hard questions of who am I now and who do I want to become? 
especially for me, because so much of my identity was wrapped up in who Andrew was. And so it's been this unraveling of, okay, if I'm not a pastor's wife, if I'm not Andrew's wife, who am I? And I'm still, and I'm still mm. answering that question. And an identity crisis is no small issue. You know, it's like, no, this, that's a big yeah, question. it's this big question of like, who am I now? And what do I want my life to look like now? And even simple things of like, wh- what do I like? What are my hobbies? What are some of the things that if I have more time now that I don't have this other person that I'm doing life with every day? And if I don't have this other person that I'm like having to, make the schedule with or plan the vacations with. It's like really all up to me on how I want to lead my kids, where I want to live, what I want to do, what kind of work I want to do. And it's a lot of freedom um, and it's a beautiful freedom. And it's also can be really terrifying and um, scary. So yeah, I think there's so much that people that are in my seat are at so many questions that people in my seat are asking themselves and are learning and are trying to navigate. And the grief journey is so unique to each person and the healing journey is so unique to each person. And yeah, I'm just so grateful for the community and the community for me has been such an incredible gift. What is the grief journey for you like? Like it's been four and a half years, maybe close to. What is is that can you walk us through the different stages? Because I think you're right. It is. And you write about that in Rebuilding Beautiful mm-hmm. as well. Um, but, you know, some people, yeah, it's different for everybody. And I think, um, you know, the way forward, at least for me, the way forward towards healing, the way to rebuild a life that's beautiful again, that looks completely different, beautiful, a completely different version of beautiful than it did before. Um, the only way through is through, you know, the only way to heal your shattered heart is through. There's no way over it or around it or under it. It's like you have to plunge right into it. And it is so uncomfortable. There's a beautiful quote um, by Jerry Sitzer. He wrote the book, uh, Grace Disguised, and I highly recommend it to anybody that's walking through a season of grief and healing. He had a horrendous lost. Um, I think he lost three family members in a horrific car accident. And so he knows grief, he knows pain. And he had this quote in his book. He was having a conversation with a friend and they were talking about this idea of you have to plunge into the pain. And he said, the quickest way to reach the sunrise isn't to head west chasing the sunset, but it is to head east plunging into the darkness until you reach the sunrise. And so it takes this like deep dive into the darkness, this deep plunge into the pain, and it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to hurt. And I think so often in West in Western culture, it's like we don't like the discomfort. We wanna, we want, we want, we wanna prescribe something for that. We wanna avoid that. We wanna stiff arm that. We don't want to welcome that. And in order to work through our pain and show up for the hard work of healing, we have to be willing to welcome it. We have to be willing to welcome the uncomfortable feelings. We have to be willing to sit with the pain and feel it and not run away from it and not try to numb it and not try to prescribe something for it. We actually have to feel it and work through it and welcome it and let it become a part of us. You know, my my pain is a part of me. It's a sacred part of me now. And because I've been able to go through it, and it really took three years, I think, for me to reach that sunrise. It it was three years and it was suicide too. So the shock of suicide, I think I was in shock for 
first couple years of like, I still can't believe that that happened. And it took three years for me to be able to come up on the other side, to start to see um, the sunrise again, and to start to believe that there was a beautiful life waiting for me on the other side of loss. And I describe my process in Rebuilding Beautiful. I broke it down into five processes. And those five processes for me have been embrace, heal, explore, dream, and live. And the embrace and heal are the most crucial, important parts of the healing journey. Um, it's where we it's where we show up to therapy. It's where we search for community. It's where we sign up to go to the widow's retreat. It's where we sign up to go to divorce care, grief share, or celebrate recovery, you know, whatever those ministries may be. It's where we look for the life-giving gift of solidarity. It's where we um feel everything we need to feel. It's where we welcome everything we need to welcome. It's where we work through the sharp edges and embrace the sharp edges of our story. And when we're, will- when we're willing to embrace and we're, when we're willing to show up for the hard work of healing, it's like that's when life can start to be beautiful again. That's when we can start to dream new dreams. That's where we kind of wake up. You know, I think it took about three years for me to like wake up and Um, be willing to let go of my clinging to this life that I so badly still wanted to cling to and, and welcome the life that is, to welcome what is and to release what was and then to start to dream about what could be. And um, those last three parts, um, explore, dream, and live, I think is where it gets fun. I think it's where we get to answer some of those questions like, who do I want to become? And we get to start to dream about what, what that version of ourselves is and where and where do they live and what do they do for work and what kind of character do they have and who are they and what kind of community are they involved in and what ministries are they serving in and who are they rubbing shoulders with and what do they like to do? You know, it's like dreaming up that future version of ourselves and being willing to show up for the hard work of feeling and being willing to show up to fight for our dreams. And it can be really terrifying. And I think the biggest friction in fighting for our dreams and fighting to rebuild a new kind of beautiful life is fear. And it's not only our own fears, it's the fear of what other people think. Um, It's the expectations that other people have of the life that they think we should be rebuilding. And oftentimes, you know, the dreams that God's planting in our heart don't line up with the dreams that other people have Mm -hmm. for us. And They may think that that move is too soon. They may think that that new relationship is too soon or that new job offer is too soon. Or for me, that new book (laughs) is too soon, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like being willing to fight for your dreams and to go to bat for your dreams and to um, walk through the doors that God is opening without fear of what others may think um, is an incredible feat. And I know for me, it was one of the things that would keep me up at night, sick to my stomach, was some of those fears of what are other people going to think? Can I actually do this? Am I going to fail? Um, But on the other side of the fear, when you're willing to show up, when you're willing to try, when you're willing to push through some of those fears, waiting, I believe, on the other side is this beautiful life. And for me, you know, one of the biggest Mm. moves that we made in the last four years was an actual physical move. And I physically needed to move from the community that we were in um, because everywhere I went, I was reminded of a life that was no longer mine. 
I couldn't go to the grocery store without passing the cemetery. I couldn't drop my kids off at school without rubbing shoulders with people that used to go to our church. Um, I was still living close to the same city where the church was located. I felt like my story was going to follow me around forever. And so I knew deep down that I needed to move. And it was a move, you know, only an hour, but it was an hour further away from family. It was an hour further away from the community that we had there. And it was a really scary step. And I asked myself over and over, am I making the right decision? And I think that's where we get hung up often is that question of, am I making the right decision? And I think that's where we can freeze and not make a decision at all because we're so afraid of, Mm -hmm. am I making the right decision? And it's like, you know what? Maybe life isn't about making all the right decisions. Maybe life is more of choosing your own adventure and, you know, figuring Mm -hmm. it out along the way. And maybe that, maybe that decision isn't going to be the best decision, but you're not going to know until you try And I remember texting my dad and telling him, like, I'm so scared, but I know that if I don't do this, if I don't make this move, I'm going to spend the rest of my life wondering what if I had. And um, that move, just an hour, we live closer to the coast now. I can walk to the beach. It's such an incredible gift to live here in this community. And that move has changed everything for me and my boys. Um, It's given us a fresh start that we couldn't have where we lived before. Um, It's given us a brand new community where we've taken back the power of our story. We get to tell our story on our own terms, who we want to, when we want to, how we want to. Our story's not being told for us. We get to tell it on our own. And for my boys, I think that's an incredible gift. And for myself, that's been an incredible gift as well. And um, we're we're outside all the time now because we live in this coastal community. Like everybody's just outside. The, the beach is our park. You know, we bump into friends everywhere we go. It's a very tight knit, small, feels like a small town. Um, but it's been such an incredible gift to push through that fear to um, step into this new life. And it's been so empowering and it's empowered me to try new things like, like remodeling our house and knocking down walls and ripping mm. out tile and you know, doing some really wild things, renovations that I never knew how to do before. And I'll never forget this moment that I had when I moved. Um, it was right before Christmas. We had just put up our Christmas tree. I was standing in the living room. The fire was roaring in the fireplace. I had just got done putting the kids to bed. The lights were still on this Christmas tree. And I said these words out loud. I said, I chose this. I think for so long, it had felt like um, I was living in a life that I didn't choose, that the circumstances that just happened to me, Andrew's death just happened to me. And for a while, it felt like death stole my entire life. And it's like I showed up, I pushed through, I fought to rebuild again and again and again. And I was finally in that moment standing in a life that I chose. And I realized like this didn't just happen to me. I actually chose this. I chose healing. I chose to move. I chose to take back the power of our story. And it was so empowering that it brought me to tears, you know? And I think that that's the fight. It's like when we fight, we are empowered. We take back the power of our story and we're empowered to build the kind of life that we want and the kind of life that we want for our kids. And a life that isn't defined by loss, a life that isn't defined by grief, um, where those things are just a part of it, you know, a sacred part, an important part. My pain has been one of the greatest teachers of my life, but it's not my whole identity. And I think so often we can get hung up in that, like that, you know, my 
the title widow could be my whole identity. Single mom could be my whole identity. And it's like, you know what? That's just part. That's just a part of it. Um, Mm. There's so much more to discover here. There's so much more to uncover about who am I here to answer that question of who I, who do I want to become? You know, there's, there's still so much more to discover and uncover about who I am and, and who I want to become and who God's designed me to be and where he's going to lead me. And I just am along for the ride, along for the adventure. And I can truly say that life here today for over four years later is beautiful in a incredibly different way, in a vastly different way, a vastly different kind of beautiful than it was before, but it is absolutely beautiful. You may have already answered this, and if so, we can just move on to the next question. But, you know, you you, you talked about three years a couple of times, that after year three of losing Andrew, which, if I'm dating this right, was last year, that that was a transformation point for you in that five-step journey. Was there anything in particular, anything specific that happened in year three? Was it a series of events or occurrences in year three that kind of turned the corner for you? And the reason I'm asking is I think we all know people who never seem to turn the corner in their grief. You know, they get stuck there. And as, as you've hinted at, um, widow becomes their identity or um, loss becomes who they are. I'm just wondering how that turning point emerged for you in yeah. year three. You know, I think there's even stories in scripture um, where Jesus, you know, goes up to the man that's lying by the pool of Bethesda and he's like, he asks him the question, do you want to be healed? And I think that's the question that um, we can ask ourselves, you know, when the unexpected happens, when the curveball comes hurtling our way, when the catastrophic loss happens, we get to choose healing, you know, and, and it is a choice. It's a choice to choose healing. And so we get to decide how we how we answer that question. Do you want to be healed? And I feel like that's a question that God is asking us in our healing. Hey, Kayla, do you want to be healed? And who, you know, whoever is listening to this in a season of loss or a season of rebuilding, that's the question that I feel like God is asking you too. Like, do you wanna be healed? And you get to answer that question. And you get to pick up your mat and rise. You get to pick up your mat and walk just like the guy did in the story um, with Jesus. And it's like, I think by year three, I realized that, that yes, the answer was yes, I do want to be healed. The answer Mm. was yes, I do want to rise. The answer was yes, I don't want to stay camped out in the cemetery for the rest of my life. And the answer was yes, I want a life that's beautiful again. And so I think I finally at year three, was able to release myself from that life, to release myself from that mm. identity of of grieving widow, you know, that I could have stayed camped out in for the rest of my life. I could have been my title. That could have been my identity. You know, for the rest of my life, I could have stayed stuck in the victim mentality. Um, and I And I'm so grateful that I didn't. And I'm so grateful that I'm continuing to choose healing. And it's a daily choice. It's a daily choice to walk in freedom and to walk in healing and to say, yes, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hang on to that anymore. And yes, I'm gonna let that go. And yes, I'm gonna live with unclenched hands. And yes, Andrew's loss isn't the only bad thing that's gonna happen to me in my life. There's gonna be other things that are hard. There's gonna be other curveballs that come hurtling my way, and I'm gonna have the same decision to make. Am I going to hold on to that? Am I going to hold a grudge? Am I going to let that bug me? Am I am I going to live, you know, in this victim 
mentality or am I going to let it go and walk in freedom? And I think the choice is up to you. Hmm. You do mention victim mentality in your writing, and I kind of want to go there. How did that surface in, in your life or in the lives of other people? But I think a lot of people, back to the beginning of the conversation, you know, if you listen to the first half hour of this interview, you can easily end up feeling like a victim. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm in this trap and I don't know what to do. Talk about victim mentality in, in the grieving mm-hmm. process and how you process that. I think it's a really important part of the grieving process to embrace the really horrible thing that happened to us, to embrace the loss, to embrace, you know, if you were fired from a job, to embrace the career change, to embrace the big Mm. move, to embrace the relationship change, um, to embrace this new season of life. And I think we have to face that part. We have to allow ourselves to be the victim for a minute and to feel that for a minute and to work through that for a minute. Um, But I think it's a really easy place to get stuck. And I think there's a lot of people that have been stuck in that place for years. And I know people that are still stuck in that place. It's like the hard, awful thing happened like seven, eight, nine, 10 years ago. And there's still, it's like time is frozen and they're, you know, you bring it up and they start crying right away. And it's like, there's so much unhealed pain still there. um, That's just still so tender. And I never want to become callous to my story. I always want my story to be this Mm. tender part of me and for Andrew to be this tender part of me and for that season of life to look back and for it to have a tender place in my heart. Um, But I I do think that it's important to not stay stuck there and to not stay like I described um, in the book. You know, for me, it felt like I was camped out in the cemetery And to not stay camped out in the cemetery, to be willing to pack up camp and keep moving. You know, I think it is like a physical thing. And it's like our our physical bodies actually, you know, during that season when I really did feel like I was the grieving wife, I was the grieving widow, I was the grieving pastor's wife. And that was my identity for a while. And it's like, I lived with like it's like almost like this physical embodiment of like hunched over shoulders and like, just like sad, you know, it's like this whole countenance and it's Mm -hmm. like, I felt that. And that was so real. And that's just how I carried myself. And when you choose to let go of that, when you choose healing, when you choose to, you know, I I showed up for therapy for an hour every single week for the first two, three years of my healing. And I showed up to community, you know, I I said yes to going to the widows conferences. I said yes to going and sitting with friends. Um, I get together with a group of friends that I've known since college once a month and we sit and we share in each other's pain. And I'm not the only person that has pain. You know, they each, we each have our own prescription of pain. We each have the things that happen to us. And my pain is no larger than their pain. And yes, my life is hard, but my life's not the only life that's hard. And I think when we're able to step out of the victim mentality, I think it gives us eyes to see that we're not the only ones walking around carrying pain. And I think that that's really been one of the greatest lessons that I've learned in the last four years. It's just my pain has given me eyes to see this deeper stream of humanity that I never had access to before. When you're the person walking around the grocery store with unseen pain, you know that there's thousands of other people walking around the grocery store that also have unseen pain. 
And um, that person that might be chewing out the guy at the checkout or that person that might have cut you off on the freeway or that person that's yelling at your kids on the soccer field, like there's probably some unhealed pain there. There's probably some things that they're working through. And it just gives you grace and empathy and compassion in a way that you would, I would have never been able to have before. And it's allowed me to shake things off and not take things so personally and not take things so seriously and just to live with compassion and empathy for others. But yeah, I think breaking free from the victim mentality eventually um, can be one of the greatest gifts you can give yourselves in your healing and being willing to um, ask yourselves, okay, like, yes, I've grieved. Yes, I've shut up for the hard work of healing. Yes, it's been two, three, four, five years now. Okay, who do I want to become? Okay, where where do I want to go from here? This doesn't have to define my life for the rest of my life. This can be a part of my life. This can be a pain that I learned to live with. And my loss has been something that I've learned to live with. But it isn't everything. It doesn't define everything. And so what do I want my life to be defined by? I think that's the greater question. Okay, if it's not going to be defined by being a victim or being the grieving widow, then what? who do I want to become and what do I want my life to be defined by? What do I want people to think about when they think about me? And um, being willing to show up and try and fight to rebuild and try new things and step into different identities and answer, figure out how to answer that question. And I feel like it's going to always change. You know, the person that I was Mm. when I married Andrew was a completely different person than I was when Andrew died. And that person that I was when Andrew died is a completely different person than I am today. And the person that I am today is a completely different person than I'm going to be next, this time next year or in five years or in 10 years. And that's the wild joy of it all is that we get to step in and out of a hundred different versions of self. And um, that's the adventure I think of life. And um, we don't have to stay stuck in our pain. A mentor of mine, Terry Wardle, who was on this podcast, I think around episode 309, he taught me such an important life lesson. He said, ministry is a series of ungrieved losses, and life is a series of ungrieved losses. And I think that's true, right? And we're talking about, obviously, a huge loss like a spouse, but little things like somebody left your church, or you got some hate mail about a message, or somebody attacked you on the internet or whatever, or a friend of yours said no to hanging out this weekend, right? It can be little, it can be big. What advice do you have, even on those micro losses, which I think pile up and become depression and anxiety and frustration and stupid decisions you'll regret later? What advice do you have for grieving losses in the moment as they occur? I read a little book and um, I hesitate to recommend it because it's totally different and out there and maybe not for everybody, but it's called The Four Agreements. And um, it's a beautiful book, but he basically, the author talks about these four rules to live by. And one of the rules has stuck with me since I read the book probably a year ago. And one of the rules is don't take anything personally. And so I've been really Mm. trying to live by that rule when something rubs me the wrong way when I feel uninvited to something, when I feel left out, when I feel ashamed, it's like when I feel, you know, other things that that are are out of my control, you know, it's like the impact of being in relationship with other people and there's things that are out of my control, Um, not taking anything personally. Um, You know, even in in the water, I've been trying to surf every Friday morning with a group of friends and 
there are some um, people in the water that'll just totally snake you and go right in front of you and spray you with their surfboard. And it can be really easy to get like super frustrated and take it super personally and like get really angry. And it's like even those little moments of learning to let things go, of learning to uh, realize that not everything is about us. You know, I think our ego, our <laughs> ego so often wants to make it all about us. Um, but when we try to not take anything personally, it's like, actually, that's not about you. Actually, you know, those people that might be talking trash on you at work or, you know, whispering in the hallway about you, like, it's actually not about you. It's more, it's more about, about them mm. and their own unhealed pain or their own things that they're going through or their own, you know, way that they think things should be. And it's like, you know, those are so many things that we cannot control and so that's been a great rule for me that I've been trying to live by and just go back to in those moments um, where I'm feeling let down or frustrated or, um, you know, just those silly little thing, little encounters that you have with people. Even yesterday, there was a dad at the soccer at the soccer field that was getting mad at my boys for kicking their soccer ball into a broken soccer goal. And my boys came over to me and they're like, mom, what are you going to do? Can you go up to him? Can you say something? And he's, he's being so rude to us. And I'm like, you know what, guys, like we can choose to walk away and maybe he's having a really bad day. Maybe he's going through something. There's something else happening there and it's not about us and it's not about your soccer ball and it's not about the broken soccer goal. And mm. so, yeah, that's been a great rule that I've been trying to learn to live by. Don't take anything personally. What are some unhealthy ways to grieve losses? Hmm. You know, I think we so often, anything um, that will, I want, I want to say this the right way because I think there's appropriate times to um, distract ourselves from the pain. Like we don't need to sit in our pain 100% of the time, day in <laughs> and day out. Seven. And it's yeah. so important yeah. to like, yeah go for a walk or go see a movie or go take a nap or like you do all those fun things. But I think, you know, if we distract ourselves too much, if we uh, reach for things too often to numb our pain, um, that that's just avoidance, you know? So just having a parameter for your own personal life of like, in what ways am I avoiding my pain? and what ways am I creating space to welcome my pain? And I think where we can get in trouble in the grieving process is when we spend too much time avoiding our pain and not enough time welcoming our pain. And so I think finding a balance in that. So, you know, there are life-defining events like losing a spouse, and I don't think they ever leave you neutral. And it seems, you know, in our conversation today, but also in your book, I mean, it's a very distinctly Christian book. And obviously your faith didn't die with the loss of Andrew, if anything. Like, what, talk about your spiritual journey over the last few years. Because it feels to me, on the outside looking in, like you're leaning in harder, not leaning away. And that's not automatic, Kayla. It's not automatic. Yeah, you know what? I think as a pastor's wife, I felt like I had to have all the answers, um, it's like I had God in this little box and he was someone that I could control and I had the right Bible verse and I had the right thing to say and I had the right advice and I felt like pressure to 
have all of that because I was a pastor's wife <laughs> of like my walk yeah, with God yeah. better be strong because our like career depends on it, <laughs> which is like such a unique thing for people that are Ooh, in, in ministry. Well said. And it's like after, you know, when Andrew was alive and he was fighting for his life and he was fighting depression, um, it really felt for a while like I was asking myself the question, like, where are you, God? And why aren't you fixing this? And why aren't you coming through? And I'm like doing, I'm following all the advice that I would give other people. I'm praying. I'm like spending time in scripture. I'm journaling. We're spending time with mentors. We're going to therapy. Like we're having people over to pray for our home. Like we're doing all the right things. God, why aren't you healing him? Why aren't you coming through? Why isn't this getting better? And then Andrew died and and it felt like God was everywhere. It felt like it went from where are you God and why aren't you fixing this to oh my gosh you're 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 here. <laughs> and you're with me and you're mm. in this and you're opening doors and you're making a way and you're providing for us. And so you know, I it, it was just so clear to me um and I know this isn't the case for everybody, so I know it's a beautiful gift that it was so clear to me, and I felt God so close in those, especially those first six months of grieving, because there was just miracle after miracle after miracle, and even some of my best friends, you know, told me, Kayla, I've never seen the hand of God like I've seen the hand of God in your grief, and it was just like so. His presence was so tangible and so powerful. And he was providing for us in such a powerful way that I couldn't look away. I couldn't walk away. It's like, it just made me depend on him even more. And so, you know, I think Mm. I went from having God in this box um, to like, it just like broke open the box and it expanded my view of God. It expanded my view of faith. It expanded my view of spirituality. And um, it's like living in this posture of surrendering to the mystery of all the things I'm never going to be able to understand. I'll never understand why God allowed Andrew's life to be filtered through his hands. I'll never understand why God allowed Andrew to die at 30 years old. I'll never understand, you know, why I'm in this life as a widow and a single mom of three boys. I'll never understand why God God called me to this or allowed this to happen. Um, But I can live and surrender to the mystery of all the things, all the unanswerable questions um, that we were never meant to answer. And I think for so long in my prior life, I was clinging to the answers and I thought I needed to have all the answers. And it's like what I've realized here in this like opening up of my faith and my view of God is that I was never meant to have all the answers. I was always meant to surrender to the mystery. I was always meant to live with unclenched hands and this deep dependence and this deep trust that that God is with me no matter where I go. There's nowhere I can go from his presence and that he's with me and he's providing for me and he's taking care of me. And there isn't anything I have to do to earn that love. There isn't anything I have to do to prove myself worthy. It's like, he's going to love me and he's going to be with me and he's going to provide for me and he's going to make a way for me and my little family, no matter what. And all I have to do is trust him. And so it's been this beautiful, um, just opening up of my faith. And um, I'm just so grateful. Hmm. Anything else you want to share as we wrap up? No, I feel like I've said a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're very articulate. The book is called Rebuilding Beautiful. It's out. You can get it wherever 
you get books. And where are you hanging out online these days? I'm mostly on or Instagram. Yeah, my Instagram handle is Kayla Steck. My website's kaylastecline.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. Well, if you want more, there is a lot more today. Uh, and thank you again, Kayla, for that. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 535, where you will get the show notes. And in the show notes, we'll also link to that blog post that I talked about. But if you want to go directly to it, here's what you do. Just go to kerryneuhoff.com. And uh, I do reflect on what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. So uh, all you have to do is look for five ways pastors make ministry harder than it needs to be. So that'll be pinned uh, for a week or so to the top of my blog. And then afterwards, you can just search for it using Google or whatever or the show notes. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say more about that. I think it's a really important subject. So if you want to check that out, please do. Thank you so much to our partners. We are so grateful for Overflow. You can go to overflow.co slash carry. That's overflow.co, not .com slash carry to learn more about year-end pricing and download their free stock giving guide. Empower your donors to easily give stock donations by using Overflow. And then by He Gets Us, join the incredible campaign today and get access to sermon assets, discussion guides, Bible reading plans, and a whole lot more. Simply go to hegetsuspartners.com slash churches for more. Well, next episode, man, I was so excited to finally meet Brian Clark. If you've enjoyed this podcast, if you've enjoyed my writings, I've learned so much from Brian Clark. And we met actually very recently, just this fall, and became fast friends. And I brought him on the podcast. We have a long conversation about how to attract and keep an audience, why email still outperforms social media 40 to 1, and so much more. Brian Clark is the founder of Copyblogger. A lot of you in the online space will know what that is. And uh, well, here's an excerpt. As a communications medium and a transaction medium, like you mentioned, the stat, 40 times uh, more likely to make a conversion. So there's a there's a lot of, of understanding who you're talking to, giving them the right uh, sort of value for them and making the right kind of offers to them. But if you do that, um, they're still more likely to buy by a lot through email than they're going to purchase through some other medium. Um, that doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means that if you're a business person and you'd like to increase uh, the effectiveness of your efforts to bring in revenue and profit, then you're going to want to do that through email. That's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, Tyler Staten. Oh my goodness, what a great conversation with him. Rory Vaden. Uh, who else have we got? James Clear, Chris Anderson, Mark Sayers, Mark Schultz, Erwin McManus, and a lot more. And uh, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review. Give us a shout out on social. We will repost wherever we can, my team or I will. And I want to give you something for free. Churches that aren't just surviving but thriving in this season actually share eight common traits. To weed out unhealthy areas of your ministry and lead a thriving church, you can get your free copy of the Thriving Church Checklist and ebook by simply going to thrivingchurchchecklist.com. That's thrivingchurchchecklist.com. It's free. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being part of the conversation. And uh, we'll catch you next time on the podcast. I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. <laughs>